Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the 19th Hole Golf Show. I'm Ryan Ballinger. Good to have you here with us. Get a hold of me on Twitter at Ryan Ballinger, R-Y-A-N-B-A-L-L-E-N-G-E-E. Get a hold of Golf News Net on your favorite social media service. Follow the Golf Trip Experts on your favorite social media service at the handle Golf Trip Experts. Find all of our work at GolfNewsNet.com as well GolfTripX.com for your golf travel and architecture needs. And we... Uh, we are available on Amazon Fire TV and Roku TV, and hopefully very, very soon, just as soon as we get the code deployed on Apple TV. So we've got a, plenty to talk about from the last couple of weeks, and just as I was thinking, you know, today I should do a podcast, kind of catch up on things a little bit, and kind of bring it right up to speed on a couple topics, and then comes out this morning this great piece a great little piece of journalism from Michael Bamberger at Golf.com who reached out to the caddy known as El Tucan, uh, David Ortiz, not of Red Sox fame, but uh, local Mexico caddy David Ortiz, better known as El Tucan, and to talk to him about his experience of caddying for Matt Kuchar at the Mycoba Golf Classic last November. As you probably remember, Matt Kuchar won that event, and he did it with El Tucan on the bag. And he needed a local caddy because his normal caddy, John Wood, had a previous commitment. Kuchar had entered the tournament late. Wood had already committed to doing something, couldn't change those plans, and wasn't going to change those plans. So Kuchar made the trip down to Mexico, and he hired El Tucan. And at the end of the week, when Kuchar had won. It was first win in four years or so on the PGA Tour. And that was kind of this feel-good story because he had won with a local caddy. He had just won $1.296 million. He broke this winless skid. You know, old guys can still win on the PGA Tour. It's great. And that L2 Con was going to get an incredible payday because most fans assume uh, that kind of know the weeds of how this works to an extent that when a winning caddy is on the bag, they get 10% of a win, of the purse for the win, you know, what their player gets paid. So if you're doing the quick math, $1.296 million, 10% of that is just shy of $130,000, $129,600. And people probably figured, okay, well, Kuchar's going to do what he would do to pay John Wood, and he's going to pay this amount of money to El Tucan, and it's going to change El Tucan's life. Because for a variety of things. One, the dollar is particularly strong right now. For two, it I mean, you just don't expect a normal caddy to be able to make that kind of money. I don't care if you're working at a resort or not. It, you, you're earning $100, $200 a day as a caddy. You're doing great. Uh, you're doing great on that in the United States. So you would be doing incredible doing that. In Mexico, but you're not getting necessarily around every day. You know, it just doesn't work out that way. So if if Kuchar had paid El Tucan 130,000 bucks for his work, a once in a lifetime opportunity could have changed the guy's life. Could have set him up for years of potential financial security, if not success. And then in Jan, you kind of forget about it. We get to January. We get to the Sony Open. Matt Kuchar is in position to win the golf tournament, and out of nowhere comes Tom Gillis, who is now PGA Tour champions. He was on the PGA Tour for a better part of a decade, had some success, did not win, but 
nearly won the John Deere Classic. And he tweets, and he's tweeted some truth bombs in the past. He did it with Ben Crane. He called up Ben Crane for a gambling debt he owed. Uh, not to Gillis, but to someone else. And sure enough, that thing got paid. And in this instance, Gillis called out Kuchar for the rumor that he paid $3,000 to El Tucan for his entire week's work. And that he didn't pay him even close to what you would normally pay a touring caddy. And it set up this firestorm because El Tucan's not on Twitter that I know of. Matt Kuchar's not on Twitter that I know of. And so neither of them were really there to weigh in on what actually happened, the details of their financial arrangement, anything like that. And so it was just left into the ether by Gillis. And of course, everyone seizes on it because the guy is leading the golf tournament in Honolulu. It's obviously uh, a scandalous kind of story. It, It generates a lot of opinion. And just kind of put it out in the ether and saw what happened. And, of course, we reported on it because if you make an accusation like that, that's a pretty serious thing. And Kuchar was asked about it at the Sony Open, I think by Brian Wacker from Golf Digest Golf World. And Kuchar said it wasn't $3,000 and it wasn't 10% and that this is a non-story of what I paid El Tucan. And it didn't go over very well. That's not a very good cover shot response where you go, it doesn't matter what I paid him, but it wasn't what you said and it wasn't what it could have been. That doesn't typically go very well. Not the best PR. And then Kuchar wins the tournament. He's got his regular caddy on the bag, so you assume John Wood's going to get paid the proper 10%. And meanwhile, you've got a variety of different folks across the spectrum weighing in with what they believe Kuchar should have done if the $3,000 payment was true. And that Kuchar should have paid him anywhere from 10% to what they did was fine, it was their agreement, caveat emptor, uh, all that kind of stuff, everywhere in between. And I think I kind of came down that I, th- I think he probably should have, if, if I were in that situation, if I were Matt Kuchar and have made more than $50 million on and off the golf course throughout my entire career, and I feel really fortunate to have won this tournament just kind of out of the blue, he had a horrible season, out of the blue with a local caddy, I could have done the right thing and changed that guy's life. I'm going to give him the 10%. Done and done. I don't care that he's not a touring caddy. I don't care that he doesn't travel week to week, doesn't have to cover those expenses, all that rationalization. If it's my money, I'm going to give him the 10%. And again, criticism flows based on where you are in that spectrum of, well, uh, Tucon should have gotten a contract. Well, that's not how it works. Uh, It pretty much universally does not work that way. It's almost always a handshake deal between player and caddy. So throw that thing out. And some would say, well... uh, then he did pay him a bonus, but you got to kind of step back from that. And then you go to the full extent and go, well, probably the right area is somewhere in between what you would normally pay a, a touring caddy because they have expenses they have to cover, and that's kind of the payout for sticking with it, right? But not what it was believed that Kuchar paid El Tucan. So Tucan talks to Michael Bamberger through a translator, and he says, I was paid $3,000 base salary, and I was paid $2,000 additional for the win. And I was paid immediately after the tournament in cash, in U.S. dollars, in hundreds, twenties, fifties, and fives, to get to exactly $5,000, and that was it. So, 
based on El Tucan's accounting, we have a $3,000 base salary, which unto itself actually would have been pretty generous, right? Most caddies are paid week to week, like 1000 maybe 1500 base salary to try to cover some of the expenses that are just inherent in being there, but it's basically a break-even because you got to rent a house, you got to have food, you got to have transportation, all that other stuff. It's basically a break-even cost. So if your player makes the cut, then you get 5% of that in a typical arrangement, which, again, they probably would do okay. It would kind of cover the week. It's not going to make you rich, but it would at least cover your expenses and you get by. And so then you get to the the portion of it where you go, okay, if you just made the cut, say you finished T60, and he makes on a twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars somewhere in there, whatever the number is. Let's say twenty thousand dollars. Then that three thousand dollars all of a sudden looks very generous. That's more than ten percent. This goes to fifteen percent. But once you kind of factor in the bonus, I think that's where all of this kind of starts to become interesting. It becomes an exercise in what you feel you would do if you were in that situation. I don't think it's an exercise in what you would do what Matt Kuchar should have done. I think there's an important distinction to be made there, and this happens a lot, where we get caught up in something and say, here's what so-and-so should have done. And I, I think you got to think about it a little bit differently and say, here's what I would have done in that situation. Because now you're saying how you would have handled it. And I, I think that's a little bit more fair of a way to assess it than saying what someone should have done. That's kind of up to them, for better or for worse. But, semantic point aside... Kuchar didn't finish T60, and he didn't make a generous payment by that standard to El Tucan. He won the golf tournament. He made $1.3 million for the work. He probably got a sponsorship deal or some kind of commercial or other opportunities because he won again. And then he won Sony, so then he did it again. So he made basically $2.7, $2.8 million in two tournaments, in part because he was able to win this one. You have to think that El Tucan at least was some portion of that. So if you want to get really crazy and say, well, Matt Kuchar has about $3 million in his pocket that maybe he would not have had were it not for El Tucan. And now you're starting to think about the actual money that was paid to him. Again, Tucan says 3000 base and a 2000 win bonus, which amounts to 5000 bucks, which amounts to not even a percent. That's about one half of or excuse me, one-third of 1% almost, a little bit more than that, of what Kuchar made. That's pretty horrible. Uh, I mean, that's that's bad. And so apparently Tukan reached out to Mark Steinberg, who is Matt Kuchar's agent. He's also Tiger Woods' agent and Justin Rose's agent because he didn't have the contact info for Kuch. And so he emailed Steinberg and said, Hey, um, I'm a working hard guy. I, I helped your man. Uh, is there anything that we can do? to kind of get me a, a, a bigger bonus for what was a, a remarkable achievement. And apparently Kucher came back and said, I will pay you $15,000 more to get you to $20,000, which again would still be less than 2% of what he earned. And that's my final offer. And El Tucan, who believes he should probably get closer to $50,000, again, a little shy of half of what a, a normal caddy would get in that circumstance, a normal touring caddy would get in that circumstance. And he believes that's a fair payment, 50 grand. And apparently he emailed back to Steinberg, and Steinberg said basically the offer's fair. I'm out of the country. That's it. And so he didn't take the money, and that's where it ends. So El Tucan is 5000 bucks. He spent most of it, and that's 
where it leaves him. I think it's, it's again, it's an interesting discussion on a variety of levels. For one, this happened, this whole thing happened in the first place because Tom Gillis. Tom Gillis made what amounted to a private arrangement public in an effort to, I believe in his heart, right or wrong, that maybe Kuchar would feel pressure from the golf community and the broader sporting community about what he paid to El Tucan, and he would write it in some way, that he would pay him closer to the $50,000, or hell, the $130,000, and make his day, make his year, make his five years, whatever. And I, I think that's where Tom Gillis was coming from, but the way that he kind of dropped that into the Twitterverse, he created a problem that no one could really address, the proper principles couldn't address. And you, you had Kucher who had to answer this question, and his response was unacceptable, by the way. I mean, it's technically true, but it's unacceptable. It was a bad piece of PR, and he probably should have thought it out a little bit better than what he did. And then you've got El Tucan, who probably caught wind of all of this stuff, but at the time... Uh, probably was not immediately aware of the firestorm going on. And then you get this, basically several weeks later, uh, you get an answer. You, about a month later, you kind of get a resolution to this. To some extent, you get El Tucan's version of events. Now you don't have Kuchar's version of events. We have no idea what, what Kuchar was intending to do all along. Was he was he even intending to pay Tucan a bonus? We don't know. We don't know what their agreement was. But... That aside, I don't think El Tucan's going to say all that he said just to make something up. That's not, that's not what happened. He showed the emails to Bamberger. He obviously had the money. So I think he knew. <laughs> I mean, he's telling the truth here. He's trying to be an honorable guy and say, look, this is what I was paid. This is what I believe I'm worth. This is what I was offered, and I rejected that. I think that's reasonable and fair to say that in public. After all, his name has been dragged into it. He has a right to give an accounting of his story. And we're never going to get from Kuchar the other side. We just we just won't. But by him, by Kuchar deciding not to really say anything other than a technically true one-liner and handling the rest through Mark Steinberg, he puts himself in a position where he looks really bad. And that doesn't mean Matt Kuchar is a bad guy. Well, I think that's worth underscoring. When someone does something that you wish they hadn't done, that someone, something poor or in poor form or just not becoming, it doesn't make them a bad person. I think we have to underscore that. But it, what he did in the moment was not good. And there are ways to fix it. You could have gone the simple route of saying, look, I made a terrible mistake. I should have owned up to this sooner. But El Tucan was great. He was helpful. He was wonderful. I won in part because of him. I'm going to be gracious and give you a bigger bonus. I'll give you a 50 grand, whatever. And, and I'll kick in some money for a caddy scholarship fund uh, out of El Chameleon, and it'll be great. That would have been an ultimate winner. would have turned a negative into a positive for everybody involved, almost immediately. And instead, he chose not to do that. He chose to kind of sit on what he's doing. He made kind of a pithy offer of some additional compensation to El Tucan, which... I mean, I guess he made the offer, but again, that's still one-tenth of what you would have believed a touring caddy would have earned in that situation. So that's that's really not an offer, in my opinion. That's not a sincere offer, in my opinion. And so 
we're now at this place where there are no winners because El Tucan didn't get the money he probably deserved. Matt Kuchar doesn't look very good because he wouldn't budge off his position. And in the end, you have this unresolved conflict that, again, will continue on. And people will forget. I mean, eventually people will forget what Matt Kuchar did here. People will forget the whole thing. But some people will remember it. And some of those people write checks. And so that could hurt Matt Kuchar's bottom line. Maybe, maybe not. But it could hurt him with a sponsorship. Maybe people don't want to be associated with a guy who has perceived to have underpaid somebody. I, I don't know. But again, the end result is there's not a winner. And every once in a while there are these kinds of situations where you have, there's just not a winner. And it, it's really confusing to think about because you got into this mess. Tom Gillis created this mess and nothing worked out. There's no. It's not like it's on TV or the movies. We have a plot resolution. It's just, all right, well, this is what happened. It stinks. Nobody wins. And it just leaves you with a crappy taste in your mouth. It, it, I wish it weren't this way. I think everyone involved probably wishes it weren't this way, except maybe Matt Kuchar, who seems completely fine with what he offered to El Tucan. And I think that... I think if you're coming from the other side of the argument, and you go, well... El Tucan signed for 3000 bucks, or shook hands for 3000 bucks, and some unspecified percentage. He should have been more diligent and negotiated it. That is, I, I'm sorry, I can't accept that point. I understand what you're saying. And $3,000 is nice as a base salary. But El Tucan's putting his trust in Matt Kuchar. It's a handshake agreement. There's no contracts. And even still, if they had signed a contract, Kuchar could have just left Mexico and no one was going to stop him. And no one was going to make a thing of it. And there really was nothing, no recourse for Al Tucan other than to go public, which he didn't do. He was made to go public because of Tom Gillis and him taking a stand that he believed the, the, or the right should be wronged, or at least, or the wrong should be righted, and that it should be at least, at a minimum, called out for what it was. There's a GoFundMe for El Tucan. It's raised about $1,600, $1,700. They're trying to raise $130,000 so that they get him what he would be owed if he were a touring caddy. Uh, I don't see it getting there, and I don't see it even approaching the $50,000 that he believes he should have been paid as a bonus. Just unfortunate all around. But unfortunately, I don't have a great way to segue off of that onto another topic because there's not a great resolution to it. So we're just going to segue into our sponsor for this week, once again, Autoslash. Autoslash has been a great sponsor of us throughout the end of last year and throughout the first part of this year. And they're really helpful for those of you who are road warriors like I can be. I probably travel more than the average person. But even if you don't travel that frequently, you know what it's like to travel. It can be expensive. It can be a pain in the neck. And if you're traveling by air, it just is not that much fun. And so when I'm traveling to tournaments or destinations or golf events of other kinds, I'm traveling by air and I'm almost always going to rent a car. Just a way of life. I've got sticks, I've got places to go, it's usually more than one place, so I'm almost always booking a car. And I'm obviously always looking for the best rate, I don't want to pay a ton of money to rent a car that I'm going to use just to drive from A to B for, for most cases. And so with Autoslash, I've been able to save more money and put that back into my business or into my bank account when I am renting a car. Autoslash is a free service that makes sure you get the best possible rate when you need to rent a car even after you make that initial booking. 
And Auto Slash can save you money a couple different ways. When you go to book, Auto Slash is going to search all of the available car rental providers at your pickup location, whether it's an airport or elsewhere, to find you the best available rate by applying every possible discount coupon code available to you, whether that comes as a member of a public through a flash sale from one of the providers, or whether that's because you're a member of an organization like AAA or Costco, because if you're a member of certain organizations, you may get a discount with certain car rental providers, and you might not even know it, but Auto Slash does and will look for you. Then after you go ahead and make a booking, Auto Slash is going to continue to look for those better rates up until the very second you pick up your car. Those rates can drop out without warning at times. It's happened to me several different occasions, and Auto Slash is there to clean up for you, making sure that you're aware of those better rates with either your rental company that you chose for that initial booking or with someone else. So you can book, rebook, and you're going to save money until you get that car, those keys in your hands. And in addition to saving with those kind of upfront pay at the car rental, rentals, or car counter rentals, Auto Slash is going to help you with those paid upfront rentals with something called Slash Deals. Those are refundable up to 48 hours before pickup, and they help you save even more money. The, the fact that they're refundables is the best part of it. That That's awesome, because off, more often than not, if you use like a Hotels.com or one of those types of services, you're paying for it up front, and if you have to cancel for any reason, you just got to eat it. With Auto Slash and their Slash Deals, you don't have to do that. The average Auto Slash user can expect to save about 30% or more on their rental and again, that's money that you can have to have more fun when you're traveling or put it back in your pocket for yourself. So try AutoSlash. It's quick, it's easy, and most importantly, it's free. Head to AutoSlash.com. Tell AutoSlash your location and your travel dates, as well as any of those potential membership discounts that you can apply for, and let it work its magic. Before you know it, you'll have an email with all the mind-blowing rates available at your disposal. So try it now at AutoSlash.com. All right, let's talk Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson won the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am for the fifth time on Monday, completing a couple-stroke victory with a final round bogey-free 65 at Pebble Beach Golf Links to not only overtake, but pretty easily beat Paul Casey coming out of that final group. It was a clinic from Mickelson. I know everything kind of got off to a late start. They pushed tee times forward an hour because of the initial bad weather. They had nearly a two-hour delay for hail and wind and rain and all kinds of elements that basically made the course too drenched and unplayable for a couple of hours. They got everyone back out there. Pace of play was horrifyingly slow, if you care about that kind of thing. After three holes, the guys had taken a little bit more than an hour in the final group to play three holes. So you got the impression pretty quickly we were going to Monday uh, because a six-hour round just wasn't going to fit with five hours of daylight left. And the guys started making a little bit more progress. They got closer and closer. All the while, Casey's just kind of hanging in there treading water. He's not really doing anything good, just kind of going sideways. And Mickelson is racking up birdies. Uh, he just went out and really took it to the golf course. I think he went out in 33 and basically caught the lead. Made the turn, got the lead, and then never let it up. Never let it up. Uh, Casey got himself a birdie on 14 that Mickelson matched. And I think that was really the only moment where you thought on the back nine, all right, well, if Casey does this and Mickelson does this, we've got a game. And they both made birdie, and that was the end of it. From there, there wasn't much daylight left after 14. I think the guys were trying to figure out how long they could go before they would have to realize they were going to play on Monday. And they got to 16 green. Mickelson, I mean, it was, it was basically dark at that point, I think, when the CBS folks changed the iris 
on the camera, so the amount of light they could find, they could bring into the camera. You saw how dark it was. I mean, again, it it should, it was pretty close. Sunset was, I believe, 5.40, 5.43, something like that. But because they were on the coast, they had a couple extra minutes of usable daylight. Nothing in the way to block the sun, right? And they get on 16, and Mickelson putts out. Uh, Paul Casey's amateur partner, Don Colloran, from FedEx putts out. And Casey's got a putt left, and they're talking. Casey and uh, Mark Russell from the PGA Tour, the head of rules and competitions, and Mickelson, they're all talking. And Mickelson's like, I'm, I'm going to keep going. Well, I think we can do this. we got a par three, which is 17. We get up there, we hit, we go play that out, and then let's just see what happens on 18. Maybe, just maybe, we can th- finish this thing today. And he really got into it, and he's trying to talk Casey into it. And Mark Russell's looking at him like, I mean, whatever you boys want to do, we're just here for you. We're not going to make you stop. You want to keep playing, you can keep playing. And Casey puts up a fight. He's like, for as much as I appreciate that, after I hit this putt on 16 for par, we're going to play 17. It's probably going to be pitch black. And I know we're sure as hell not going to play 18 because I'm not going to let that happen. And it's a, the most compelling part of the day, honestly, was the back and forth between the two. Mickelson, who's gotten into this mode, we are finishing now. I'm going to win today. And Casey's like, well, let's pump the brakes. Hang on. We could finish tomorrow because Mickelson was clearly going to win unless he drove the ball into the ocean on 18. And Casey wasn't in that position. He was tied for second place with Scott Stallings, who had an awesome Sunday, got himself and his Pro-Am team way up the leaderboard. And so Casey needed to make sure he birdied 18, and or at least at a minimum, didn't bogey 17 to cost himself a ton of money and to an extent, FedEx Cup points, but even perhaps more importantly to Casey, world ranking points. So Casey's pumping the brakes, and says, I'm not going to do it. And Mickelson walks away upset. Horn blows because it is dark. They call it, and Mickelson's upset. They come back the next day. Casey hits his par putt. Mickelson's waiting on 17T. They both hit great tee shots in there. At this point, it was just to finish, right? It's not whether... Mickelson was going to be overtaken by Casey. And Casey cannot even hit the hole from about seven and a half, eight feet for birdie. And you think, oh no, like he came back for nothing. He's going to find a way to boot this and give second to Stallings. Mickelson gave a good birdie putt effort, didn't go in, but at least it was a good effort. So we know the tournament's going to be over if Mickelson finds dry land. He does find dry land with his tee shot. He can just kind of scoot his way up to the hole. That's fine. He gets up, makes birdie. Casey puts himself with his second shot. He's going for the green. He's going to try and make an eagle, at least make it interesting. I mean, you you have to try, right? And maybe Mickelson makes par, and all of a sudden, you know, something crazy happens. And it doesn't work out that way. Casey finds just around the bunker, but he gets a, a, a drop, and so he gets to be able to come from the fringe. He makes birdie, so he separates himself into second place. From Stallings, that works out great for him. So coming back on Monday was the absolute right thing for Paul Casey, which, I mean, it was all along. It was just really great theater to watch Phil Mickelson try to justify playing two holes in pitch black conditions so they wouldn't have to get up and play golf at Pebble Beach Golf Links at 8 a.m. on a Monday. Something that if any of us were texted with that opportunity, we would do pretty much anything within our power to make that tee time, even if we're just 17 and 18 we would strongly consider it. And only a touring pro would be like, ah, I'd like to get out of here as soon as possible from 
one of the absolute best places on God's green earth and one of the best golf real estate locations that there could be. And I just found that absolutely funny but compelling at the same time. Now Mickelson has five wins in this tournament. He ties Marco Mira for the most wins at Pebble Beach. Of course, it creates this delicious teaser that Mickelson could win the U.S. Open, which is at Pebble in less than four months, and or in four months' time, almost exactly from now when we're recording. And <laughs> he could finally win the career Grand Slam at Pebble Beach, his favorite place to play golf. His spiritual connection here, his father Al Santos was one of the original caddies, at Pebble when it opened in 1919, celebrating 100 years. It's been 100 years. Santos was like in fourth grade. He's like nine or ten when he was caddying. He's got this. He gave this special silver dollar. I don't know if he gave it to him, but Mickelson acquired it from him at some point, and it's something he used to rub between his fingers because he wanted to have a better life for his family and himself. And Mickelson uses it at Pebble as his ball marker. And he uses a replica of it everywhere else. So this, he gets out this special coin for this opportunity. And it's, oh, it's just the best. I mean, it literally could not have set up the U.S. Open in any better way. And uh, I think it's going to be really cool for that. Even though Mickelson said, and pretty much anyone should know, that winning at Pebble Beach in February when it's cold and windy and nasty and not quite a U.S. Open setup and frankly, not even close because of how wet it was throughout the week. I kn- there's nothing that portends that Mickelson's going to do well at Pebble Beach by comparing what happened in February to what's going to happen in June. But knowing that he's won there five times in the past, knowing that he's had so much success there, knowing that he has such an emotional connection there, knowing all of that makes you think maybe a year after Mickelson absolutely embarrassed himself at Shinnecock by chasing after that putt, frankly embarrassed the USGA in the process, that he could win the U.S. Open. That from the lowest point he was at in this championship a year ago, he could be at the pinnacle of it 12 months later, his absolute favorite golf course. That Now that's a great golf story. I don't know if we're going to get it. Of course I don't know if we're going to get it. But if we get it, how good is that? How good is that going to be? Meanwhile, we've got Riviera this week. Basically, everybody in the top 50 in the world that's not a European Tour regular is in the field. It's going to be a really good tournament. you got Tiger, Rory, and Justin Thomas grouped together for the first couple of days, just like last year when it didn't go so well for any of them, really. And it'll be cool to see that work out. It's going to be a great tournament this week. So we kind of start a run here. We started one already, but we started one in... I guess San Diego. We have some really good tournaments in a row. I know Justin Rose winning in the end was a clunker. But if you look at the winners from this year, if you look at the guys who have come through this year on the PGA Tour and really in recent weeks, those winners are really interesting. You've got Justin Rose. You've got Ricky Fowler. You've got Phil Mickelson in the last three weeks. Who's going to win this week? Could be amazing. So make sure you tune in for the golf this week. And we'll be back to talk about it with you next time on the 19th Hall Golf Show. If you listen to our show through podcasts uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts app. If you can head over to our page, 19th Hole Golf Show, rate us five stars. We appreciate it. It helps us reach more people. And if you listen to us through some other podcasting service, and if you've got a rating mechanism, give us all the stars, all the positives. We always appreciate it. And if you actually have something substantive to say about the show, please email me, ryanatthegolfnewsnet.com, or hit me on Twitter, at Ryan Balangie, where I spend the few minutes a day that I'm actually not doing stuff related to this company. 
So until next time, I'm Ryan Balji saying thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on the 19th Hole Golf Show.